Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Football Show. Welcome to The Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Fun show for you guys today. Danny Kelly from The Ringer. My buddy Danny is going to be joining us a little bit later to talk about how some recent player archetypes might affect the way we look at the 2021 draft class. Also, he is the king of pre-draft comps. We're going to list off a couple of those. Really fun conversation with Danny. Before we get to that, though, I am thrilled to welcome my good friend, Lindsay Jones. Lindsay, how are you? I am good, Robert. Our whole podcast plan blew up this afternoon, but I'm here for it. It's That's totally okay. how we roll in April. I would much rather be talking about Sam Darnold getting traded to the Panthers than anything else as my dog rolls around on the floor in front of me. So here we are. We have had a ton of quarterback movement or potential quarterback movement happen in the last week or so. We've had the Niners trade up. You and I have talked about all the dominoes yet to fall, and it felt like the Panthers were one of those teams that may be doing something. I think the biggest question we had about Carolina was, do the Panthers want any new quarterback or did they want a definite upgrade at quarterback? We knew they were in on Matthew Stafford. They were interested in Deshaun Watson. We were curious what their draft plan might look like. And I think that this trade for Sam Darnold is definitive proof that they wanted anybody that is not Teddy Bridgewater because it does seem like they are committed to Sam Darnold. So now that you've seen the trade, which I believe is a sixth rounder this year and a second rounder and a fourth rounder in 2022, how do you see this from the Panthers perspective? Yeah. I mean, it didn't feel like my initial read on it was that this doesn't seem like a ton to give up. It does by, by committing two future draft picks, the 2022 draft picks, you have to be pretty committed to him and believe, though, that Darnold is going to be good enough because if he's not good enough, you've given up the capital that you would have needed to get yourself in position to get high into the draft again. Um, it's, it is a, they're in an interesting situation contractually with him. And we talked about this on the podcast last week when we kind of laid out some of the, we were talking about it mostly in relation with the Broncos, but with the Darnold trade, the deadline to pick up his fifth year option is shortly after the draft. It's, uh, it's sometime in that first week of May. So you have to assume now with Carolina giving up two twenty two two. 22 draft picks. That is hard. That is a mouthful. Um, two draft picks next year, that that's somewhat of a long-term commitment. So you have to think that they're going to at least pick up that contract, pick up that option. They could redo that deal. They're not locked into him on the fourth year salary. They could still, you know, negotiate a different contract for him at that point. But yeah, I mean, for, for Carolina, this is a sign that they think that Darnold isn't broken. They think he's fixable. They think with, you know, a brilliant young offensive coordinator in Joe Brady, an offensive minded head coach in Matt Rule, that maybe they're going to get the, you know, the post Adam Gase bump that so many other players have have benefited from that, that, you know, 23 year old Sam Darnold is not beyond saving. So that's clearly what Carolina is thinking. Um, For the Jets, I mean, I was on the phone with an agent um, when this trade broke. And I read it to him over the phone and he said, 
wow, that's a terrible deal for the Jets. And it seems like a modest haul for the Jets. I mean, they're getting three picks. The fact, I guess you're getting a second next year, but they're not getting a ton for a guy that you took number three overall just a couple of years ago. I'm going the totally opposite direction with this. Sam Donald has been one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL since he got to the NFL. If you look at it, there have been 51 quarterbacks that qualify with at least 300 snaps since Sam Darnold was drafted in 2018. He ranks 49th in EPA <laughs> per play among those quarterbacks. The only two guys who have been worse than him are Dwayne Haskins and Josh Rosen. That's it. Those guys were available for nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I that's not to say that Sam Darnold is should be lumped in with those guys. It's not to say that Sam Darnold can't resurrect his career. I think that's a conversation we'll have in a second. But getting anything for him, any sort of draft capital, in my opinion, is impressive. <laughs> it's a second and a, I, and I do think he was always going to get traded for something. But I don't think a second and a fourth is necessarily this terrible haul for somebody that we've seen be actively bad for three years. If you change his circumstances, I do think that there's a chance he's salvageable. But I also think you have to use your imagination and look and find something that we have not seen on an NFL field to think that Sam Darnold is a long-term answer at quarterback. I absolutely think the Jets did fine. This is how you and I know that, or I know that you and I are not offensive coordinators or head coaches in the NFL because they always believe they can see something. In a guy, they you offensive coordinators or offensive minded head coaches, they always believe that a guy is salvageable, that they're going to be the ones that are able to fix this guy, especially a guy who's as young as Sam Darnold. And and yes, he has been objectively bad. But this also tells me how bad a lot of the other coaches, or at least the coaches on the Carolina staff, believe that uh, Adam Gase was because that's that is the answer. Because Mitchell Trubisky was also the second overall pick in 2017. Mitchell Trubisky signed a one-year, $2.5 million deal with the Bills this offseason for nothing. The Jets just traded multiple draft picks for Sam Darnold and, as Jonathan Jones from CBS reported, are picking up his fifth-year option. Like, it is for two guys who have been about as bad as each other during their entire careers to be valued this differently by the NFL establishment, says all you need to know about what everyone thinks about the job that Adam Gase has done. And just, you know, also where they are in their timeline, too. And, you know, he's very young, too. And if Darnold was a free agent at this point, it would be maybe a little bit, you know, what he would actually command on the open market. But, But man, it's interesting because I think you know, you wrote last fall about Sam Darnold and all of the potential landing spots and where he could fit. And, you know, there is still still stuff to like about his skill set. I just feel like we know nothing about who he truly is. And that's because of Adam Gase, the just dysfunction, every weird injury that he ever had. I mean, he had what, a spleen thing. He had mono. I mean, he's had every weird thing that has possibly ever happened to him. And that, mo- I will say, that mono game that he missed gave us the greatest graphic, the greatest <laughs> meme potential forever, which the Carolina Panthers have already tweeted it out. They already put out of New York indefinitely and changed it to teal blue. Oh, which, I saw like, it. That's it, some quick work. That's uh, that's well done. I, th- I do think that if you're trying to spin this positively for Carolina, he is walking out of the worst circumstances possible 
into some of what, in my opinion, are the best circumstances possible, solely play caller-wise. And the weapons. You know, DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson. He used to have Robbie Anderson. Now he has Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore. We've seen what the post-Adam Gase bump was like for Robbie Anderson. And you hope that the same thing can happen for Sam Darnold with Joe Brady. I mean, he was fantastic dialing up plays for that offense last year. There are significant questions about some of the personnel. They need a left tackle. This allows them to do that at eight, potentially. Let's say Penny Sewell drops to them at, with the eighth overall pick, and they get... Which is possible. Certainly possible. And if the, people like Rashawn Slater, they could get one of the two best tackles in the league at number eight now if they're not going to draft a quarterback. So some of those holes could get filled. This offense could look pretty good in terms of the infrastructure pretty fast. But I don't think it's necessarily a guarantee that Sam Darnold is going to look appreciably better in Carolina than he looked with the Jets. He certainly could. But I do not think that it's a foregone conclusion for that to happen. So now, if you're looking at the Panthers' overall plan, I don't really understand it. Like, Can you draw a through line or tie together all of the moves they've made over the last year to make this move for Teddy Bridgewater and to have him for at least $10 million on your cap now if you were to trade him in dead money, for him to be somebody you really committed to a year ago. And now it's not as if they're moving on from a clear upgrade. They're moving on from a project that, even if he has potential, has not been very good and has not been better than Teddy Bridgewater has been over his career. I just think that they're really swinging here in a lot of different directions and don't know exactly what they want to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, they have they always felt, and I said this last week too, they always kind of felt to me like the team before about a month ago felt like the team that was angling most to make a serious run at Deshaun Watson. And that would have made sense. Now, this you is know, not if, that. If this is a different timeline and the world is proceeding differently with everything related to Deshaun Watson, you could have said, okay, I, I see that plan. But yeah, I don't necessarily see this as, okay, they're a better team necessarily with some Dar- Sam Darnold, unless Sam Darnold has some Ryan Tannehill in him that all he had to do was get free of the Jets. And all of a sudden, he's this new player. But that's a, that's a leap. I mean, that's a really, really big leap of faith. And also, you're still on the books now for for Teddy Bridgewater. It's not super easy for them to just move on from Teddy Bridgewater immediately. I mean, it's not this massive contract. It's not, you know, you're not taking on Carson Wentz amount of dead money or anything. But there's not a ton of options. And who out there right now is looking for Teddy Bridgewater? I mean, there's not exactly this like, robust trade market now for Teddy Bridgewater either. So you're kind of stuck in this uncomfortable situation where, you know, you you wanted Teddy to be the guy last year, you sign him by all accounts and everything any of us have ever known or, you know, the time we've spent around Teddy Bridgewater, fantastic dude, you know, really easy to root for, you know, he got himself you know, came back from that devastating injury, did what you're supposed to do as a backup quarterback to kind of get his career back off the ground, thought he got a chance to be a starting quarterback. And now for the second time in his career has been somewhere as the quote unquote starting quarterback when that team has replaced him with Sam Darnold, which is, you know, I guess kind of crazy that this happened to him now twice. And I just don't know exactly where, where he goes from here. If he just ends up staying in Carolina as the backup, are they going to make this like, try to make it a competition? I mean, by all accounts, they are going to try to trade him or restructure that deal. Because if you look at it right now, he's on the books for $23 million this year. And if Sam Darnold is the presumptive starter, which I think he has to be when you consider what they traded for him and then picking up that option, then what are you going to do with Teddy Bridgewater? Again, I just think that 
it's really a scattershot play. I mean, they have not displayed much patience when it comes to figuring out that position, what they want to be, how they want to build this overall. I just think that it's really hard to distill what the plan is from that front office so far. I mean, obviously, Scott Fitterer is in his first year there, but I assume, like all quarterback decisions are, this has to be somewhat ownership-driven, and their kind of urgency to do this all season has to be somewhat ownership-driven. And I just don't know if that urgency is necessary or it's been channeled in the right ways when you look at the moves they've made at quarterback over the last year. And I just don't know who's who's out there right now who's actively trying to trade for Teddy, Teddy Bridgewater. I think the only real team that we've talked about a lot that still has a potential seat at quarterback or would want to add competition to their room is the Broncos. But Teddy Bridgewater is a $17 million base salary this year. I don't know if anybody wants to be trading for that if he's not going to be their clear-cut starter. And I think that becomes the problem for Carolina to move him. Yeah, it's and I think, you know, this kind of maybe transitions us in to talk a little bit about the Broncos who, you know, we spent a lot of time on them last week. And when we're talking about the draft, Carolina was kind of that other team that was in the mix. They were a spot ahead of them at eight. If the Broncos wanted to draft a quarterback, you were you thought you'd probably have to get ahead of Carolina. Well, now Carolina is out of that mix. It's one fewer team in this future draft coming up in a couple of weeks that could be in the market for a quarterback. So, you know, for the Broncos right now, it kind of feels like if they're really going to do something significant to their quarterback room, it has to be in the draft now. And what does that mean for the moves they have to do? Are they going to, are they, do they still need to try to move up or does the way this board could fall now, really depending on what the Falcons do at four, they could have one or two quarterbacks there for them at nine without having to make a really significant move. That's kind of my question for Carolina here. Would it be would it have been smarter to wait until the draft unfolded to see how it fell before you did something like this? It's not as if the Panthers were Washington or Chicago where, or even the Patriots, where you can add some talent or add a body to the room, but you weren't necessarily in a position to get one of the top four or even five quarterbacks in the draft. The Panthers have the eighth overall pick. I'm sure they've done plenty of due diligence on where they could have moved to. And it's certainly possible that at eight, they called the Falcons, the Bengals, and obviously the Dolphins just traded back up. So they called the Falcons and the Bengals and said, we're interested in going up there to get one of the guys. And the Falcons and the Bengals both said, no, thank you. I, that certainly could be possible. But even sitting at eight, it still feels like there are enough different ways for the draft to go that you might have been able to get a quarterback there. And that's the thing about the Darnold thing. Maybe they don't see Mac Jones as an upgrade over Teddy Bridgewater necessarily. But is Sam Darnold... That, that, to me, is the confusing part about this. I, I just don't know why you'd have to make this move right now unless you had really good intel that someone else was going to swoop in and make this deal for Sam Darnold immediately. Well, and, and Ian Rappaport uh, earlier today tweeted that the that the Jets and the Panthers, um, or, but as they've been negotiating, and they've been negotiating over a couple weeks apparently on this, uh, they said that the, the Panthers were the best and sole suitor for for Sam Darnold. So if you're the sole suitor, does it even matter if you're the best that you're, I guess you're, the, <laughs> only, you're, you're, you're the only, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm sure I was the best and sole suitor for my husband. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't know, or vice versa, but that's, 
I don't, I don't know if they, like, is that a compliment? I don't know, or vice versa. So um, is that saying that the Broncos weren't actively in it? I mean, there was, you know, there's been a lot of speculation, certainly here in Denver, that they could have been in play for Darnold. Um, but yeah, I mean, were they negotiating against themselves? Could they have gotten themselves a better deal if they'd waited a little bit longer? I yeah, I don't know. The whole thing of it is just odd and that we're here on April 5th and feels like we've had a lot of these questions answered. I mean, how many more dominoes could potentially fall between now and April 29th? We're running out of them. And I think that's the craziest part is that I just didn't expect something like this to happen with this sort of timeline because the idea that the Panthers would be the only suitor, I think indicates that other teams that may have been interested in Sam Darnold would have been interested in him as a fallback option. He would have been a breaking case of emergency type of thing you'd turn to if the draft didn't fall your way. But the Panthers went out and made him a priority when it seems like certain ways the draft could have shaken out would have made this a better option for them. I don't know. I just don't think that pursuing Sam Darnold, even if you didn't give up that much to get him, this is clearly prioritizing him and making a decision when you don't have all the available information about the way the quarterback dominoes are going to fall. And I just don't know why they needed to be in that much of a hurry. But here we are, just racing to make some moves on April 5th. I mean, I don't know. Do you have faith in Sam Darnold? Like, do you think this can work? Uh, No. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't want to completely write him off. I mean, I don't want to say he's like Josh Rosen and he's had his one chance and now he's he's done and we've kind of moved on from him. I don't want to latch on too much that like how young he is and how green I he think is the, and gay stuff. I think that stuff is real enough. And I think that it's worth bringing up the fact that he's younger than Joe Burrow. He's about a year older than Mac Jones. All of that stuff I think is worth considering. But I also think that he would be the worst quarterback. He would have the longest track record of bad play of any quarterback that's ever become good. And especially when you consider the era. So if you go back, I did this research when I was writing about him last year and the trades that could be made. There are quarterbacks who have been as bad or right in the range of Sam Darnold that ended up becoming good quarterbacks. Examples include Eli Manning. Uh, Alex Smith was really, really bad for his first three seasons. Uh, Drew Brees was also not very good for her, his first few seasons in San Diego. But we're talking about 20 years ago when overall efficiency and ease of offense was in a much different stratosphere than it is right now. With the way the game is played right now, it would be a complete historical outlier for Sam Darnold to end up turning this around, becoming an above average quarterback. And that is the bet that the Panthers have made. Do you think that they're hoping that, you know, he can kind of take a Josh Allen kind of leap? Is it a Ryan he's Tannehill not that, leap? He's not that talented. He, like, I don't think yeah. he's as physically talented as Ryan Tannehill or Josh Allen are. He's definitely not as physically talented as Josh Allen. I know that for sure. Is he, and he's not as talented as Ryan. Well, Ryan Tannehill was like a freak athlete. He's now had like 18 ACL injuries. You're really having to talk yourself into this and yeah. you're really having to imagine something that's not there. And if you're going to do that as a contingency, if your original plan didn't work out, that's fine. But it seems like in some ways, this is the original plan. Like this is the contingency, I guess, to not getting Deshaun Watson and Matthew Stafford, but it still feels like it would have been worth seeing the draft through before committing this sort of 
emotionally committing and financially committing to Sam Darnold as your quarterback for what seems like the next two seasons. Yeah, at least two seasons. Man. Don't you just I, love that it's another team that's making really frustrating quarterback decisions? I mean, I'm very used to it, but I think that <laughs> and I think a team like the Bears is a useful example. Because there were no other avenues to get a high upside option, you could have argued about trying to go get a guy like Sam Darnold. But it seems like the Panthers potentially could have had a chance to get a higher upside option if they had waited and see how the draft worked out. I don't know. Maybe they just thought that there would be this. It really feels to me that they were they were just set on Watson and they thought Watson was going to happen and they had to abandon that plan. And this was, they thought the best they could do. But I just, I don't think it's that much of a difference from Teddy Bridgewater. And I just don't know how much we learned about exactly what that Panthers offense should have looked like last year when your best player, Christian McCaffrey, wasn't a part of it. Their offensive line wasn't great. So I don't know. Good luck competing in the NFC South. It should be fun. It, this answers the questions for me of did they just want any other quarterback option? Yeah. They, and that just feels like you're getting impatient. That's it. They just didn't like what they had and they were willing to go anywhere they needed to to try something different and see if it worked out. And he- Well, I'm going to make a meme of that for you from the Sam Darnold meme. Any warm body <laughs> with Sam Darnold pointing right at you. <laughs> I, it could work out. I have a lot of faith in Joe Brady. I think he's very good at what he does. If you play this out 100 times, I'm just not sure how many of those outcomes have Sam Darnold as a better quarterback option for this offense than Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, maybe it's half. I don't know. But... It is a big, big risk. They didn't give up much, but I think it's more about committing to Sam Darnold instead of something else. That is the risk you run. It's not what you gave up to get Sam Darnold. Even paying him $18 million next year, $19 million, whatever that fifth-year option is going to be, that's tolerable when it comes to starting quarterback money. But I do think that that commitment and spending two years chasing the idea of Sam Darnold, that's the risk. Because if you can't channel that energy into another quarterback option and you're not sitting there next spring open to whoever might be available everything else that to me is what might be a problem and because All who right, knows so now we need we need some mystery team to get involved in this like draft trade scenarios just to make let, let's spice this up let's uh you know we spent a lot of time last week talking about mystery teams so that's what we need to happen now is this quarterback cycle well now that's that becomes really interesting because if you're new england and washington and the bears and those teams that don't necessarily have long-term quarterback options now if the fifth quarterback whoever it might be is sitting there with i don't know dallas is the 10th pick right has the 10th overall pick Maybe there is a guy available that just wasn't going to be for you because one of the teams we thought might draft a quarterback isn't going to do it. So we say that you know more, one of the dominoes has fallen and we've an- had one of those questions answered, but this might just lead to more questions. So it's going to be fascinating to watch. All right, Lindsay, thank you very much for doing that. Always good to chat with you. We'll talk to you next week. See you later. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm thrilled now. To welcome my buddy, my old co-worker, Danny Kelly. Danny, how you doing, man? 
I'm doing excellent. Thank you for having me on the show, man. The Ringer is Danny Kelly. I should make that clear. <laughs> we worked together while I worked at The Ringer. Yeah. So yep. when I was planning the draft shows that I wanted to do, every year I'm fascinated by this because I think it's impossible to look at any given draft class without filtering it through how the league has been recently. And that's trends, which you know we talked about a little bit with Seth Galeno last week. It could be certain you know play types and whatever. I think it all it's inevitable. It's human nature to react to whatever has just happened. And I think that same thing happens with player archetypes. And that's what I wanted to talk about with you today because yeah. one of the things you do in your fantastic draft guide, which you guys have not checked it out, you should go to theringer.com and read it. It's amazing. It's super well done. And they do it every year. And you do comps for every single player. <laughs> and your comps are hilarious and they're fun. And we're going to get into some of those comps. But I think those inform the way we think about the league and the way that we connect certain player types and body types and skill sets and everything else. So if you looked at last year, for example, like Henry Ruggs going 12th overall to the Raiders, mm -hmm. I don't think that happens in a world where Tyreek Hill doesn't exist. Right. If, right. In, and you know this extremely well with the amount of six foot two, 33 inch <laughs> armed right. cornerbacks that right, were drafted right. from like 2012 through 2017 because the Seahawks exist. So yeah, I exactly. want to talk about what sort of examples there might be for this year's draft. So just right off the bat, I think the one that jumps out to me has informed a conversation we've had about for the last week about the Niners. And that's the idea of these raw, talented quarterbacks shaping what teams might want. And I just think, and I don't know if you agree with this, I feel like if Josh Allen and Justin Herbert didn't exist, we would be having a much different conversation about the direction that the Niners should go with the third overall pick. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think you're spot on. And, and honestly, the Josh Allen pick and the Justin Herbert pick have like completely changed the way that I look at quarterbacks, yeah. too. You know what I mean? It's like I'm now. I, basically, what, I'm, what I've become is much more open-minded about what these quarterbacks can be. Um, like Josh Allen, in particular, is probably going to end up creating a whole lot of quarterback busts ultimately because he is he somehow was able to learn how to become accurate and develop and become um, a much more polished quarterback than he was in college. And, and I think the big question around him coming out of uh, school was basically, can you learn to be accurate? can you improve in that area or is that just God given talent and you just either have it or you don't have it. And I think what he's proven is you can develop it. You can, you can get better at it. You can improve on it in some cases, you know, he's still, you still have to throw off platform and do all those things where um, I guess like your, your instincts sort of kick in and you're not, you're not doing it as fundamentally sound or whatever, but he's been night and day basically from what we saw both in college and like his early couple of seasons, both accuracy and decision-making. So that number one is just, I think that it, that answers that question, but it's also going to like open Pandora's box because all these teams are now going to be like, okay, well, this guy wasn't very accurate in college, but we can make him accurate. And then the thing with Justin Herbert, I think that is very interesting is his tape as a rookie is like better than anything we saw in college almost I feel like and so I don't think it's I almost I it's not throw almost my hands better up. I think it's definitely better <laughs> I just want to throw my hands up and be like I don't know any of these guys can be good like let them go play you know what I mean put a good support system around them I think coaching is obviously a very big deal I think support system is going to be a very big deal for all these guys I don't know what the actual lesson here is but I do think you're right that teams are going to be more willing to take these quote raw guys you know Trey Lance I think is a perfect example totally 
17 career starts, didn't even barely play this year. You know, is that a lower level of competition? So there's like multiple strikes against this guy and he still could be a top 10 pick. Um, and I think he probably deserves to be. And I feel like the question here is precedent because that really, really matters for people that are making these decisions within teams. Yeah. I remember last year I had somebody with a team, like a decision maker with a team, talk to me about the Justin Herbert 6-6 stuff. And how there just hadn't been quarterbacks <laughs> that tall that were successful. This is a real right. thing. This yeah. is not just like a joke. Like that, it's yeah. these are real conversations that happen in NFL front offices because until you see something happen, it's hard to bet on it happening. Past performance right. and past outcomes are the best indicator of future outcomes. And when you look at a guy like Josh Allen, that suddenly turns on some light bulbs because people look at it and say, Oh, well, that worked. We've actually seen it work. And yeah. I think the same thing happens with certain types of players using certain types of scenarios, right? Like take Kyle Pitts, who is yeah. in a lot of people's estimation, the best player in the entire draft. It's not, not Trevor Lawrence. Right. It's a lot easier to understand the ceiling that Kyle Pitts has and what he can do for your team in a world where both Travis Kelsey Aaron, and Darren Waller exist because it plays with a lot of different things. With Waller, I think the skill set and everything else is aligned in a way that you don't have to use a lot of imagination, but it mm -hmm. also helps you understand the value of tight ends because you can look at the way a team like Kansas City or the Raiders use their tight end as their ex receiver and all of that other yeah. stuff. And you could say, well, he's not just the tight end. Look at how these teams use them. And just by those one or two examples, it can completely transform and reshape the conversation around a player like him. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, having guys like Kelsey and Waller who are both, you know, the number one guys in their offense, basically, like they're the number one receivers in their offense. I, I guess you could talk about Tyree Kill too, obviously being there, but I think Kelsey and Waller are the go-to guys in their offenses. And it's almost like the positional designation doesn't really matter. Like the way totally. that they're able to create mismatches, whether they're in line or, you know, X ISO or Y ISO or whatever, um, you know, whether, no matter where they're lined up on the field, they can create um, mismatches on in, uh, for the defense. And so I think, you know, with any of these players, with any draft el eligible prospect, you have to go to a team that's willing to kind of like use you for your, for your skill set and use you in the right way. I think there's a lot of caveats whenever we're talking about guys before the draft that it takes landing in a situation where a coach is going to know how to use these guys, I think, correctly, especially when you're sort of talking about a guy like Pitts where there's really – zero good comps <laughs> like for him previously based on like his size, his skill set, his speed, all that stuff. Darren Waller is probably the closest one, but, and obviously he had a different career path, I guess. And so it's, it's really hard to find a one-to-one -one, uh, comparison for Kyle Pitts because he's just kind of like, he is the unicorn. That's what a lot of people are calling him on Twitter and stuff. But I do think it, it's going to matter where he goes and, and what kind of coach he's going to have and, and what kind of system he's going to be in because you have to be able to utilize him to his, elite potential to, to really get all that out of him. So I don't know. Pitts to me is one of those guys where you, hit, you look at the history of the tight end position and, and the top 10 guys have not really panned out as well as you'd like. And that will scare people off the, the, like you said, the precedent thing where there's just not a lot of guys taken in the top 10 at that position, that's going to scare some teams off probably. And they'll be like, Oh, well, you know, we, we can get a guy in the second round and he can make an impact, but some team is going to fall, fall in love with this guy, take him. And hopefully he'll change the narrative around that that tight end position thing. I just don't really understand that because I think the only reason you would list him as a tight end is because he can be an inline blocker. Yeah. 
you aren't inherently less valuable because you can do one more thing. So that's why I just don't really understand the conversation around him. If you look at what Travis Kelsey is for the Chiefs, he is their ex receiver on a lot of situations, in a lot of situations, in a lot of the way they use him, and Waller is the same. So if you're a wide receiver often enough, I think that you can be valued as a wide receiver. I don't think that yeah. just because you put your hand in the ground every once in a while, it suddenly makes you less valuable. So I just haven't <laughs> understand that conversation. But when you watched yeah. Pitts, did you immediately go to Waller as like, okay, that is the only thing I have to compare this to? Did you find yourself doing that? Or did you trend in that direction after you'd heard other people start mentioning it? First of all, I usually go and look at like height, weight-ish to like get in the ballpark of comps. And I think he was like right around the same size as Darren Waller. So that was an easy comp. But I think the way he moves, the way they move, like move him around in the formation, how good he is at the catch point. Darren Waller is super underrated as like a contested catch player. Totally. He's, he's really good at the catch point. I think overall, just generally speaking, Waller is super underrated. But he was the first guy I went to just because of the athleticism and the size. He's a little bit like, quote, undersized for being the tight end position. I think he's like 240 or something like that. So, you know, he's not necessarily the prototypical Y tight end type of guy. And there's just not very many guys like that in the NFL that are, are that impactful in the in the passing game. And so he was, he was definitely the first guy I thought of. And then I came up with this much later, but I, I, he also reminds me of Michael Phelps <laughs> like when, <laughs> on his pro day, like b- because there are so few one-to-one comps for him in terms of just like size, length, speed. Like the other thing is he has like 84 or something inch wingspan, it's which unbelievable. the biggest on like record, like they don't have any other tight ends that have had that kind of like those dimensions. Um, and so I was actually texting with you about this. Like he reminds me of Phelps because Phelps was like genetically designed to be a swimmer. He was like born to be a swimmer. Um, you know, like the really long arms, huge flipper hands. Didn't you, I think you told me this. He has like webbing for in his feet. And yeah, it's kind of like, like how Deandre Hopkins has webbed <laughs> hands. It's the same yeah. kind of deal. So, you know, Michael Phelps, like he, he just is the perfect body type to be a swimmer. And obviously, you know, he he worked his ass off to get to where he is, but there. Uh, but with Kyle Pitts, like the guy is designed to be a pass catcher. He's just bo- he was born to do this. Very fast. His movement skills, I think, are really underrated. Like when you watch him, he looks like a basketball player out, out there. The way he can move, like a like a you know small forward or something, because he's just so smooth. Really good body control. A lot of guys like his size, his height are going to be kind of like lumbering around. And, or they um, can't throttle down. When you have that sort of right. speed, can you change speeds? Can you control your movements in a certain way? And I think yeah. of the little I've watched him, that's what really jumps out to me too, is that he can yeah. do that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So um, I'm really excited about him as a prospect. It's going to be very fascinating to see how high he goes because I think that has now become sort of the consensus that you know outside of the quarterbacks, he might be the most talented player in the draft. Well, this is a conversation I think Nate and I are going to have tomorrow, and I think it's come up a lot in the last few days, and I've been dragged into it in a way that I don't totally appreciate. But this Pene Sewell, Jamar Chase argument about the Bengals <laughs> and right. how positional scarcity, I think, should inform the thought process there. And that's why I think that if you're going to make an argument for getting the best pass catcher at number five, if you're Cincinnati, and the guy you can't get anywhere else, the answer is Kyle Pitts. It's not right. Jamar Chase. Kyle Pitts is the best offensive weapon, and not even best. I think that that's, to reframe that a little bit, the rarest. He is yeah. the rarest offensive yeah. weapon in the draft, and that's why I think if you're 
the Bengals or the Dolphins, you could absolutely talk yourself into getting him at five or six, even if Mm -hmm. he theoretically plays a less valuable position because he can play tight end every once in a while, (laughs) which I, I, again, that's an entirely different thing. Yeah, I I totally agree. The other one I thought was worth mentioning is that because, again, the teams that are winning, the teams that are in the spotlight, everything else. Does the way you watch Micah Parsons, is that affected by how good Devin White has been for the Bucs? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I, I don't have it in front of me, like in terms of the, the the track record of linebackers taken in the top five, top 10 or whatever. But it's you know, not I wonderful. Think generally speaking, yeah, it's not like something it's not like a tackle or a big time pass catcher or whatever. Quarterbacks obviously are huge in the top 10. And you want a guy that's going to be super, super impactful. And the way that the NFL is going these days, right, is defenders are getting smaller. You have to cover like that's the big thing you have to be able to cover. And, you know, there's all these things where the the modern linebacker is sort of shrinking and turning into like almost like a big safety with Parsons and with White. Like I went back and I was just watching some White this morning because I was trying to like remember exactly how, you know, the Buccaneers used him. He's just in the backfield. He lives in the backfield all the time. And the way he's able to like juke and slide off of blocks, that really did remind me actually a lot of Micah Parsons. Like Micah Parsons is essentially a pass rusher who's playing linebacker and I think you almost can't find the plays where he's in coverage. There's only like three or four of them (laughs) in a given game. It's kind of wild, actually. Yeah, he doesn't he didn't play a lot of man. He was if anything, he was like spot dropping and kind of just hanging out in zones. But then they were also using him as like a delayed blitzer coming off the edge. You know, that skill set, I think, is is really interesting because he he's he's in the pros. He's going to live in the backfield. He's going to be uh, I bet you'll have a ton of tackles for a loss. He's, he's probably going to get a few sacks. He's that type of player that can really impact the game in that way. Now, I think the question is, can he can he cover and, and if the team gets him in and asks him to run in man coverage like that, I guess, is like a projection because you don't see it a lot in his college tape. And he's relatively new to the position like he was a high school pass rusher. So. Um, I think he has the athleticism, the again, the, like the body control, change of direction, all that stuff to be a really elite player. But again, it's like finding the right fit for him and finding a team that wants to utilize that skill set, I think is going to be key for him. I think the other guy that I would throw out in terms of his pre-draft profile is what Anthony Barr was coming out. Because Barr was somebody who did a lot of pass rushing at UCLA, was obviously a physically gifted and was asked to play off the ball when he got to minnesota but for the most part it was a projection you had to use your imagination in order to get to that place and it's it worked out he's been a very good player and does a little bit of everything but it's not as simple to me as saying all right these are the other off-ball linebackers that have gone in the top 10 like in my opinion a guy like micah parsons is a vastly different player than somebody like devin bush was for example right who could blitz a little bit but and i think that if you look at the way that the bucks have used devin white that to me is kind of a best case scenario with Micah Parsons. And I think there are gaps in that, right? Like I feel like Devin White was overrated for a good portion of last year because he is a little bit lost in coverage. And I think early mm. in his career, Micah Parsons probably will be that too. But yep. you can see the value by the way the team, a team like Tampa Bay Houston, where he's adding on into stunts and he's blitzing late and everything else. And he has a feel for that. I think it helps inform what a team could see in Micah Parsons because we've seen it so recently. And I yeah. just don't think without that... I would be as optimistic about the way that he could work out. I also think the one difference that is worth mentioning between him and White is that because he's longer, there's a little bit more margin for error 
in mm-hmm. coverage because his arms are he, there's just more space that he covers. I think you compared him to Tremaine Edmonds because he has that sort of frame, and the I think length. that's the difference yeah. between him and White is this the overall length that they have. So yeah. those are the ones that I was thinking of. What do you think are some of the other archetypes or just desirable player types? that have cropped up in the last couple of years that have informed the way you've watched this draft and you think might inform the way teams are watching this draft? Yeah. The first thing that really comes to my mind is watching safeties in college is can be a challenge because, you know, they a lot of times they're playing like three defensive back looks, three safety looks. They're, they're You know, you're not seeing a lot of just like very standard cover three where a guy is like ranging around in the back by himself type of deal. It's, it's you know, like playing over the slot, playing in the box, playing down, you know, off the edge or whatever. Like safeties in, in college do that a lot. So I think teams are still looking, and, and from the NFL point of view, like teams are always going to be looking for the Ty- Tyron Matthew, Jamal Adams, Derwin James archetypes where you can, you can have guys – and those are all those three are different type players too. So it's like basically what I'm saying is very versatile, multiple skill set type guys that can line up in multiple areas. Last year we saw you know guys like uh, Xavier McKinney, Grant Delpit, Jeremy Chin, Kyle Duger, and then this year there's a few guys that fit in that mold too for me, like Jeremiah Wusu Karamoa from Notre Dame. We'll Charlie get to Mo-Rig. him. Yeah, I love him. Javon Holland from Oregon. Elijah Molden from Washington. So to me, it's like you see these guys and you, and you watch the tape and you're like, okay, I like them. Ball skills, you know, they're very instinctive. But with a lot of these guys, it's like I don't really know exactly like where they fit. They're not like with Elijah Molden. He's like very instinctive, flies around, but he's short. He's he's He doesn't have length and he's not super fast. So what is he? You know what I mean? In, in the NFL, is he going to be like a slot corner? Is he going to be like a nickel safety? Is there a difference? <laughs> and, and so I think these like tweener type guys, I think number one, I think a lot of these guys are coming out of a college game. And number two, I think NFL teams are still looking for these kind of guys to like plug into their defense, guys that can match up with either a slot receiver or a, a running back or a tight end and, and kind of hold their own. So that's one archetype that definitely comes to mind. I think a few guys fit into that. And then when you were, when you were talking about the quarterbacks, you know, I think the raw thing where you're turning a, a lump of clay into a good good player at the next level. The other thing that I think has happened over the last few years is the so-called like sandlot quarterbacks. Those guys are having sort of like they're much more I don't know if accepted is the right word. Like teams are teams are actually looking for that more now. Like you got Mahomes, Russell Wilson and Aaron Rodgers are kind of like three that come to mind for me and and I think all three of those guys are are benefiting a guy like Zach Wilson, who obviously the arm strength and the arm talent is is apparent, but like the way he he plays, like he carries it low, he throws for multiple arm angles, he whips it around, he like will go across his body, across the field, no look pass type things. I feel like in the old days, or at least like 10 years ago, NFL teams would have looked at Zach Wilson as an undersized improviser with bad fundamentals who trusts his arm too much. And yeah. now they're looking at him like, this guy can be Mahomes 2.0 or Rodgers 2.0. Because of what he can do, you know, after the play breaks down. So I think there's been a change in mindset among NFL teams where they actually look at Sandlot skills as like a positive thing. Whereas in the in the past it was like, oh, he can't play in structure. You know, he can't get the ball out immediately. I'm not saying that Zach Wilson can't do that, but I'm saying that style of quarterback, I think would have been looked down upon a lot more in the past. Whereas now it's Zach Wilson is one of the most exciting prospects in the entire class. And then thirdly, 
I just think this has been a thing and it's going to be a thing every draft is the positionless offensive playmaker, the totally the Cobb, the Harvin, the Debo Samuel. You got a few guys in this class, Kadarius, Tony, Rondell Moore, Elijah Moore, Mari Rogers, a few others who fit that mold as like slot receiver slash running back slash whatever, like do, you know, sweeps, end arounds, take the ball from the backfield, all that kind of stuff. And I think teams are always going to be looking to add those kind of guys too. I also think that if you look at, so me and Seth Galina last week spent a lot of time talking about how some of the schematic trends on defense in the NFL inform the types of players that teams might be looking for. And we talked about safety for a while for similar reasons to what you're talking about. Just that, you know, you have guys that are, you know, they're helped by, you know, certain aspects of how they're lining up and the way that they're, they're split field coverages so they don't have to cover as much ground and you're almost protected right. by other players so you don't their range doesn't matter as much so i think all of that is true and i think if you look at what's happening on the offensive side of the ball think about how many teams now have touched or are adjacent to the shanahan type offense i mean think about how many you could list the rams the niners the packers the titans the Falcons the now, the Jets now, the <laughs> Browns now, the Vikings now. I mean, you're almost at a third of the league. That's and crazy. Those, those are all different. But I also right. think that it's beyond, and I think the Niners are a perfect example, right? They clearly have a type with the type with the sort of receivers that they want to go after. Totally. The fact that they drafted Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk in back-to-back years shows, and Shanahan's talked about this, essentially saying that there isn't as much true traditional route running in college football because of the types of defenses they play against and the type of offenses they play. So you're really able yep. to just judge guys that are good with the ball in their hands and what they can do after the catch. And they have chased the best guys at that. And if you go look at what the Niners offense is like, there's a ton of that kind of stuff. There's a lot of yak yep. opportunities. There's a lot of just short completions where let's get let guys get the ball in their hands, even running plays to guys like Debo Samuel. But even beyond kind of the gadgety stuff they do, Look at a team like the Titans. Even though those two receivers are more traditional outside receivers, the number of drift routes within their offense where it's just play action, in-breaking, get the ball to the guy on the move, there's tons of that. And that's Mm. not real refined route running stuff. Like late separation on those plays is nice at the top of routes, but for the most part, you're just trying to get the ball in the guy's hands and let him go to work. And I think yeah. that's why if more and more offenses are going to run plays like that and try to get balls into their guys' hands behind linebackers on the move left to right, having guys that are just really good with the ball in their hands that are plus-plus athletes becomes even more important than guys who are necessarily refined players at the position. Yeah. And I just think that's going to become more and more prevalent as more and more teams run that type of offense. So it's just fascinating because it almost feels like the game in a way, has set up for guys to be better route runners. They're running more routes than ever. They also understand coverage structures better. Like the Mm -hmm. number of seven-on-seven reps you're going to have played in your life and saying, well, this guy's capping this guy and the way he's lined up. It's just all of that information is just more robust with receivers now than it ever has been before. But also... The amount of space being created through play action is bigger than it's ever been. So that stuff is less important. It's just, yeah. it is, that's why it's so, so hard to scout receivers really well. And we <laughs> never know which ones are going to end up being the best ones. Yeah. So this, the whole time you were speaking, I was just re- reminding myself of AJ Brown. The AJ Brown evaluation that's exactly right. coming in was he only ran out of the slot. You know what I mean? He was not running like, 
a really full route tree. He didn't have a ton of experience, at least in his last year there um, playing on the outside. He was essentially a slot receiver, obviously a slot receiver that was built like an X receiver. But I think that was like important part of like the context is I remember writing this in my report, like, you know, he's a big explosive slot receiver that can get yards after the catch. And I probably way undersold him because he was mostly played in the slot. Now, you throw him in that offense and he's perfect for what they're doing. The same, same could be said about like DK Metcalf, you know, very limited route tree, can't run a three cone to kill, to, to save his life, but he is really, really good at a few routes and they get him in the NFL and he's perfect in the Seahawks system where he can just run a go route or he can run like a deep over route where they're playing off play action. He's just going to run away from a defender. So it does make scouting receivers really difficult, but it's also, I think th- this is like the golden age of receivers because of all the stuff you talked about offensively that's happening. It's like you get, these guys can just go out there and be really, really good athletes and, and you know, make a difference. I think that the A.J. Brown and D.K. Metcalf outcomes are really telling and they're informative yeah. for what we should be thinking about because it's just betting on traits and figuring it out later. Yeah. And one of the yeah. reasons that's difficult to do or was difficult to do for a really long time is because it wasn't that long ago where there were not nearly enough offenses in the league that were actively helping their players get open. Yeah. I think that there we are not that far removed from really static offense throughout the NFL. The coaching is just better. And I think that play, teams are more willing to just let their guys do what they're good at. And I think that A.J. Brown and D.K. Metcalf are the perfect example. You take these guys who are plus, plus, plus physical specimens. And as rookies, you don't say, I want you to be Devontae Adams or Keenan Allen. You say, <laughs> right, exactly. this is what you do really well. Let's tailor the offense and your role in the offense to what you do really well. Go back and watch what A.J. Brown did as a rookie compared to what he did last year. Way less stuff outside the numbers vertically. He's just Mm -hmm. getting the ball on yak opportunity after yak opportunity, just tunnel screens, but also just, again, in-breaking routes where they're creating space for him and letting him go to work. DK Metcalf lined up on the left side running vertical (laughs) routes in the Seahawks offense his entire rookie year. and He's got one look. Yeah, <laughs> that <laughs> position is so it, it, it's why it's so fascinating, because unlike something like corner or I guess corner, you can kind of do this. But unlike something like offensive line or cornerback or quarterback, you can't play situationally in those positions. Mm. You just have to play against everything at receiver. You can completely tailor it around what a guy does really well as he learns the game. Right. And yeah. I just think that's why betting on guys that do well with the ball in their hands after the catch and just have these outlandish physical abilities. That's the thing you should bet on because you yep, can have guys yep. come along slowly and because we're creating more space than we've ever created in the entire sport. And yeah, I think that's absolutely. in some ways the valuations of that position are a little bit outdated. And I'm guilty of that as anyone. When I was watching DK Metcalf, I was just like, no. Like, I don't, because, <laughs> because I am so no. far onto the Devontae Adams Keenan Allen, Stefan right. Diggs side of things. Those are the players I love. And watching somebody who's a little bit stiff and doesn't mm-hmm. have a nuanced understanding of the position, I'm like, pass. Like you can, he's yeah, the best yeah. athlete there is, but that's not what I want. But now I just think that that is the way of thinking about things 10 years ago and not now with this basketball on grass type of approach yep. that we're taking to the game. Yeah. I mean, and when you think about it, like, obviously this is a broad generalization, but like NFL offenses have changed a lot where, in the old days with like your Devontae Adams example, a guy has to get to a spot 
like at the exact right time where the quarterback hits his back foot and gets the ball out. And if you're not there at the exact right time, like it's going to mess the entire play up. You're going to have, you know, interceptions are going to be thrown and this precision, precision timing and getting to where you're supposed to be was so it's like so hard. That's why you'd see like receivers come to the league and not play for the first two years is because they're trying to learn. There's that like third that. year breakout. That was always the conversation. Yeah. Year three break, breakout with receivers. And it just, I mean, the other thing is like option routes and things like that. Like you're trying to like read the defense and, and figure out what you're supposed to be doing, be on the same page as a quarterback and all that stuff. It's just very complex. And and like you've been mentioning is here is like now teams are saying, look, we got these elite athletes. They can really be explosive playmakers for us, but we just got to put them in a the position to succeed. And maybe coaching is getting smarter or maybe coaching is just getting more flexible. I don't know exactly what it is, but um, I think it's here to stay in the sense that, you know, teams are going to be more, you know, catering more to what college players know how to do because they've seen the success that these guys have had early on in their careers. I think more flexible, more open-minded, all of that stuff is real. And I also just think the amount that we're using these kind of things, Ryan Tannehill used play action on 36.4% of his dropbacks last year. Five years ago in 2016, when Matt Ryan won the MVP award, he led the league in play action percentage at 27.6. (laughs) <laughs> 10 percentage points higher and yeah. it's not just one outlier matt ryan led the league at 27.6 percent in 2016 do you know how many quarterbacks were above 27 point through 27.6 this year 16 oh, 16 guys <laughs> yeah, there and you go. and i think that smart teams and i talked to a play caller about this recently just about looking at the if you're looking at the pie of plays that the titans use how much drop? How much pure play action is what they're doing? And try, mm-hmm. I think smart teams are going to try to increase that slice of their pie. And as more yeah. teams try to copy that sort of thing, we're going to see more space created for receivers. It all starts start piling on one another. If you're looking at those after the catch kind of playmaking types in this draft, do you have a favorite? Ooh, that's a very good question. So I think Elijah, I don't know if Elijah Moore fits perfectly into this category, but he is he's one of my favorite sort of sleepers in this draft, and I think he could even sneak into the first round potentially. Um, but he is, you know, sort of known as like a, a slot only receiver. You know, he's, he's not super big, but he's very explosive with the ball in his hands. Very good athlete. He never drops the ball, so like I trust him to be the kind of guy who's going to catch a ball like you know, like tunnel screens and stuff like that, where you're running towards the quarterback. And trying to catch the ball, sort of like knowing you're potentially going to get hit. That's not like an easy catch. Like you can trust a guy like that to do that on the move, um, over the middle of the field on, on, you know, little little slant routes, things like that. So Elijah Moore would be one that I really, really like. And then obviously, I think the one most interesting guy fitting into this discussion is Kadarius Tony from Florida. Because he is, you know, very raw as a route runner. He, he does a lot of, you know, just sort of like improvising his routes and kind of just like doing whatever he feels like he should do like down the field. And I think that could rub, you know, a lot of quarterbacks or play callers the wrong way, but if you get him the ball, he's very, very elusive, breaks a ton of tackles. Um, it's almost like uncanny how he can break tackles. He comes out of these like three man scrums and he just like keeps going. All of a sudden. <laughs> um, like just appears from a pile. All of a sudden he's still running, but he's not the kind of guy like, we've been saying like that you're just going to line up and run him in like a normal offense or else it's going to be a catastrophe. You have to like kind of ease him in, I think, and, and get him looks, get him touches and, and then teach him, you know, more, some of the more intricacies of the position. But 
it's looking more and more like he's going to be a first round pick. Like he's that explosive. He's that dynamic after the catch. But I think in the wrong offense or in the wrong coaching staff, like in the hands of the wrong coaching staff, it could be bad. And I think that's, it goes back to the receiver thing. I wonder how many of those were going to, I wonder how many coaching staffs were going to kind of label that here over the next few years and how many teams we think are truly bad spots for some of these guys, because (laughs) I I almost think we're running out of them. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like for the most part, the baseline level of offensive coaching, the number of schemes, Adam Gase isn't anywhere anymore. Like there are no Adam Gase offenses right now. (laughs) And I do think those are starting to shrink. And and that's why these types of guys, I think we're going to keep seeing be successful because of that, just because of how many teams there are going to be that are able to use them. Well, all right. Yeah. Let's get to some of your favorite comps that you had in this draft class. And I'm going to throw out a couple as well. So sure. why don't you start with Zach Wilson? Because this one I really, really like. <laughs> All right. So I had I had Wilson as uh, Baker Mayfield slash Henry Rowan Gartner. And for people that didn't grow up, whatever, whenever this was like the 90s, early 90s. I can't uh, it was 1994, I believe. 94. A movie Rookie directed by Daniel Stern. <laughs> All-time great filmmaker. Uh, yeah, so obviously this is a joke. It's it's kind of like tongue-in-cheek, but for, for a few reasons I had the, the rookie of the year in my mind. Basically, Zach Wilson looks like he's probably about 15 years old, and the story of rookie of the year is he breaks his arm, and for whatever reason the tendons like heal up and he can throw 100 miles an hour all of a sudden. And so like Wilson is this like baby-faced guy but just has like a whip for an arm throws from all different angles. It surprises the hell out of you. You don't really understand exactly how he, so like for the, the pro day throw that everyone was like, you know, freaking out about you watched that. And it was legitimately like an impressive throw. Like I didn't really get how he could generate that kind of velocity, the way he was moving. It was like all sort of like in the rotation of his, of his upper body and like his arm. And it was like, you know, he didn't like set his feet. He basically just whipped it with his upper body. So, yeah, that's my that's my comp. Like Baker Mayfield was kind of the first guy I thought of when I watched him. That might be selling him short a little bit, but I'm not ready to go to like the Aaron Rodgers thing quite yet. It is kind of like the deal. But yeah, he to me was uh, you know, just like the dynamic arm, like the, the ability to throw from different sl- like arm slots and, and platforms. Um is kind of like how you define him. So uh rookie of the year, yeah. I, it's funny because when you watch Rookie of the Year, which I've seen many, many times, Rookie of the Year is a very <laughs> important film to me. As a kid who grew up in Chicago in the 90s, I was six years old and Rookie of the Year oh, came yeah, out. That's right. I've seen it a lot of times. <laughs> if you've ever seen it, there's a comical sound effect whenever he throws the ball. And it's like a snapping <laughs> sound. When you're wa- It's exactly what it's like. When you're watching Zach Wilson play, you can almost hear that snapping sound yeah. on some of those plays because it doesn't look like it should be moving that quickly. And I do right. think that's the biggest thing. is Because when, when you watch Baker Mayfield, Baker Mayfield is capable of generating a lot of power, but he's doing it in the pocket. He on the yeah, move, yeah, he's yeah. not going to be able to generate that sort of power because he needs totally. to have his cleats in the ground and he really needs to push off and use that rotation to generate velocity. Wilson is able, he has so much more creativity on the way that he throws. Baker is not going to be able to make those sort of throws from those sorts of arm angles while he's on the move. Mm-hmm. His best stuff and when he's really putting some RPMs behind it, that's when he's sitting in the pocket. And totally. Wilson's not like that. He just has that creativity where it looks like his arm is snapping in a comical way, which I completely agree with. All right, let's get to your next one here. Who'd you have for Najee Harris? I assume everyone knows who these people are. Najee Harris is the running back from Alabama. 
Correct. Yes. Uh, so I had Steven Jackson for him. I think the Najee Harris comps are very interesting because he's another type of guy who doesn't have a ton of like very strong spot spot on one to one comps because he's big, physical. You know, you just don't see many running backs that are like six foot two in, in his size. And so I want Steven Jackson a little bit further back, but like Jackson, big physical guy, like a grinder type running back, but also very effective in the running or in the passing game, you know, soft hands, all that stuff. Uh, and that's kind of like how I would think of Harris is like a dynamic, physical, you know, three down back grinder type player who can you can give him 20, 25 carries in a game and he'll be fine with it. Um, but also very effective in the passing game. I think that's like the big thing about him is he's he's going to be a pass catcher in the in the NFL offense. I think that's huge. And, and so, yeah, Steven Jackson, I don't know if I necessarily think this is like the closest comp, but he was the guy I thought of. I like that a lot. And when I watch him play, the, it almost feels like this amalgam of Steven Jackson and Matt Forte. Because yeah. he's taller like Matt Forte was. Forte was six foot two. He's really smooth in the passing game, like smooth. Forte was, like Steven yeah. Jackson is. But his running style isn't as smooth as Forte's. It's almost more violent, like Steven Jackson's. So it, it almost feels like a combination between those <laughs> two guys. I see people have compared him to Forte. I see the Forte stuff. I also he doesn't have quite as much straight line speed as Forte had. I think that's right. the biggest difference. Forte ran a four four four, I believe, at the combine. Uh, Harris did not run at Alabama's pro day because he he's run. interesting an injury. But his on tape, he's not that fast. He does not no, have that no. breakaway speed like Forte did. So I almost think again that's why he compares a little bit more to Stephen Jackson. But the height and he's actually coming in a little bit older, the same way that Matt Forte did. I know that's not a stylistic thing, <laughs> but Forte was also twenty three yeah. when he came into the league. The same way Harris is going to be. So I, I completely agree with both of those. Steven Jackson also, both of those guys, Forte and Steven Jackson, all-time favorites. Like dudes that I <laughs> yeah, totally. could not have enjoyed watching more when I did. I mean, I, Steven Jackson was older than Forte, but both of them were on their teams while I was in college. And I went to school in Missouri. One of my buddies that was my roommate was a huge Rams fan. Steven Jackson was oh, his yeah. all-time favorite player. Because Steven Jackson was the only tolerable player on the St. Louis Rams during that era. <laughs> the one so, good player. It yeah, was yeah. really rough. Those years where Steven Jackson was amazing, the Rams were not. That's all I have to say. All right. I feel like Steven Jackson, to me, I think when I picture him, I feel like I'm hopefully I'm not misremembering this, but I feel like he had a really good like stutter step hesitation move. And yes. I see I see the same thing with Najee Harris. He's like like you said, he's not a home run hitter, but he's quick and he can like get guys off balance by like doing like little, um, you know, like rocker step type moves or, or hesitation moves that kind of get guys off like balance. And um, I see that a lot in Harris, too. And I think that's why it, it compares a little bit more to Jackson than it does to Forte to me, because Forte was a smooth glider. And with Harris, you watch him and it's a little bit more violent and sudden in the way he's putting his feet down. <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. that reminds me of Jackson. All right. Let's get to Travis Etienne. Let's stick with the running backs here. We're trying the way we shape this. We're trying to talk about some positions that we haven't talked about on the show yet, or we're not talking about tomorrow with Nate. So there's not going to be a lot of wide receivers in this group. So let's stick with the running backs. <laughs> Who'd you have for Etienne? So for Etienne, this one's a little bit off the wall, and it's not what I think he's going to be in the NFL. It was mostly because I think Etienne has a weird running style. Like it's a little bit herky jerky. Like when you watch him, it feels like he's all shoulders. I don't know. Like when he's running, he's just like churning out yards with his shoulders. So I comped him to Darren McFadden, who was also a four threes type runner with a sort of stiff herky jerky 
running gait, um, but explosive, explosive acceleration. And that's really the, the big thing with me for ETN is he's extraordinarily explosive as an accelerator. He can get to top speed immediately and that makes him elusive. He's not like a shifty guy. Like that's going to like, you know, make a lot of guys miss probably in the backfield. But what he does do is explode at two top speed and then break through arm tackles and like basically surprises guys and beats like beats them to the corner or like totally just annihilates your pursuit angle. Like his speed is almost like surprising, which is weird because he's, you know, famously a very explosive runner. (laughs) But I still think like just the way he runs, it almost like it doesn't look like he should be as fast as he is, I guess. And so um, I wouldn't make fatted purely based on like running, like the way he looks when he's running. (laughs) Not like not like this is what he's going to be as a pro, basically. Yeah, it's, I, it's interesting because he's the exact same size as Alvin Kamara. They're both 5'10", 215. Interesting. But yeah. he's, not near, he doesn't, he's not nearly as smooth. He doesn't glide like Kamara does. Right. But I do think that the contact balance is similar to some of the stuff that you see from Kamara. And where ETN is faster in a straight line, I mean, he, he ran sub 4'4", four, four, correct? It was 4'3", 9". Uh, yeah, I believe so, yes. And so Everybody he, ran 4'3", 9". Yeah, every, everyone did. <laughs> but uh, you could, he's fast. When you watch him on tape, yeah. he is a There's home no run question. hitter. And right. it's, it, you no know, it's, I think he plays that fast. But the the other thing that the comparison with Kamara is, even though Kamara didn't play that fast, Kamara I think had a ninety seven percentile broad jump. Etienne's is ninety third. Like they get from zero to sixty very very quickly. It's just that Etienne can get from zero to eighty. So I think that's I see those comparisons. Even if again, it's not quite as effortless as Kamara often makes it look. Yeah, he ran a four four. So adjust that to like four, four, three or something like that. But yeah, he's obviously extremely explosive, extremely fast home run hitter, touchdown maker at the highest level. Like he scored a million touchdowns in college. I don't know if that's a skill. I think it is a skill, just the the ability to like will yourself into the end zone. And he certainly has that. Where, how do you stack up the running backs? Like if you were trying to go one, two, three, how do you have them? I should know this. Uh, uh, Harris, ETN, and then Javante Williams. From North Carolina, as my I, I haven't watched Javante Williams enough yet. That's something that I he's a lot do. of fun. He's he's a tackle breaker. He's the first couple of guys I thought of. I think uh, Josh Jacobs and like the high end version of Josh Jacobs, where they're actually feeding him more touches than the Raiders are doing. Um, and then this is like totally underselling him, but he reminded me of Mike Davis like this year. Like you know, early on after CMC got hurt, Mike Davis was just going ham. Mike Davis everybody. is good. It's yeah. amazing to me that Mike Davis is good. <laughs> Mike Davis has played for both of our teams, but also yep. I'm pretty yep. sure has played for every team in the NFL. Every team has had Mike <laughs> totally. Davis at some point, and Mike Davis looking as good as he did last year, I think, was shocking to both of us who yeah. have paid a lot of attention to Mike Davis in the past. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I again, I don't want to say he's going to have like a journeyman career, but I'm just saying like his Mike Davis was just like running through tackles like early on in this last season. And so um, I kind of saw like that same style. But yeah, he's going to be a tackle breaker at, uh, at the next level. But like and it's going to be a lot of fun to watch him. And that's one of those things that tackle breaking is one of the stickiest stats and stickiest traits from college to the pros that yeah. we have. And when you combine tackle breaking ability with pretty excellent straight line speed, you can get a pretty special player. My understanding, though, is that he can play a little laterally sometimes. There are moments where he's trying to bounce stuff and it's not there. So there might be some vision issues. But overall, I think the physical skill set, I mean, that jumps out to you. I watched a lot of him yeah, this morning. Yeah. All right. 
Next guy we had on this list, somebody we mentioned earlier, and I definitely want to talk about is Jeremiah Wusukoromo because mm-hmm. digging into him a little bit, easily the most fascinating defense. I think there are a couple <laughs> arguments, but I, I can't remember anybody with this sort of pre-draft profile mm-hmm. that was mentioned this high in the draft because even a guy like Isaiah Simmons, right? There are, there were questions about how he'd be used in the NFL, but I think everyone kind of understood he's a linebacker. You know, you figure out how exactly how it's going to go, even if he doesn't necessarily have a position at Clemson, this right. guy, we know how he was used in college, but people are projecting him as a linebacker in the NFL. There's almost like a disconnect there to me. So when you were trying to comp him, who did you come up with? The first thing I thought of, and this is maybe a little bit like I'm being a homer because I'm a Seahawks fan, but he reminded me exactly of Jamal Adams in the in for multiple reasons. Number one, Adams lines up all over the formation. He's a flashy player. Like he makes flash plays, you know, tackles for a loss. He flies around, pretty big hitter, and basically is like a spark plug player for the defense. Like he's always amping people up. He's always making big plays, energy all that stuff. So like that completely reminded me of Jamal Adams. Um, but in the same vein, and we saw this with the Seahawks, like if you don't use him in the right role, he can almost, he, he has the potential to like not be a liability necessarily, but not live up to his potential. Disappear. Um, I think that he can disappear every once in a while. Yeah. So I think if you're asking him, if you're asking Owusu Koromoa to be a real, regular linebacker where he's going to have to be taking on blocks and, and getting big in the box, all that stuff. He could definitely struggle. But if you're playing him all over the formation, asking him to like blitz from the slot, um, line up over the slot, do a little bit like over in the box, but maybe like help protect him or whatever. I think he could be extremely, extremely exciting, extremely good player for a defense. But I, again, like landing spot is going to be big for this guy because he's undersized. He's, He's the size of a of a safety. I think he's, he's Jamal Adams' size. I think, I really just think he's a safety. I don't I, like to me. He's not like necessary. We're gonna call him a tweener because he was a linebacker technically, and he's probably gonna be like gonna say linebacker on the card or whatever. But to me, he's a safety. Play him as like a strong safety, and I think he'd be really, really good. So he lined up on over the slot on three hundred and thirty-one snaps last year. He was yeah. in the box on two hundred and twelve snaps last year. <laughs> he is not a linebacker. I don't understand why we're right. calling him that. Like he is that's not what he is. I it feels like calling him a linebacker is a misnomer. And I don't know yeah, how he's yeah. going to be used in the NFL. But I do think that the way that players at that position are being used now, it raises some questions about the right spot for him, but also how valuable he could be in the right system just because versatility is so important. You know, can yeah. he be a money linebacker or your third safety? all of these different things. And I don't know the answer to that, but it really does feel like he's stepping into the league at the right time to be used in the right way. Kind of similar to what we yeah, talked about with yeah. the receivers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, if his, his experience playing over the slot is going to be massively valuable in my mind. And he showed instincts and coverage. You know, I don't know if he necessarily he knows where his help is. That's what yeah. I was really impressed with. He has a very good understanding of leverage and where to push guys, yeah. everything else. And it's not because with some of these guys, especially I think Isaiah Simmons is a good example you're projecting based on the athletic traits mm-hmm. with him. There's yeah. not as much projection involved because you've actually seen him cover before, which I think right. makes it a little bit safer. Yeah. And I would say like for people that haven't watched him, he was, I think the the most 
like the earliest it was immediately evident that this guy is fun as hell <laughs> like <I'll put> that <laughs> you know some like sometimes like grinding through 150 200 players it can be kind of boring at some positions like jeremiah usukormoa was the most fun player to watch like almost immediately he just flies around like no regard for physics or his body he's just flying around you know laying guys out amping up his teammates like he's the kind of guy who's like amping up his teammates even when he doesn't make a play kind of deal like i just i don't know he was just a lot of fun to watch i think that there's a spot for him in the nfl like we like we talked about in the right scheme if you use him like a like a jamal adams where he's rushing and he's being a blitzer and he's being used in the like pass rush i think he could also be like a big factor there because he just closes like lightning so i don't know he's he's just like a personal favorite of mine one of my like the most fun players to watch i really hope he lands in a position to to like be able to use that skill set i'd just be so i'm so curious how teams will filter their scheme through him and what they what an individual team will see from him i think that all that's always fascinating with these guys who don't necessarily fall into a pretty traditional box all right yeah. Let's get to the next one here. Aziz Ojolari, the edge rusher from Georgia. Who did you have him come to? So I didn't go like super deep on this. Basically, I, I want Shaquille Barrett. And for a number of reasons, number one, I think he's bendy, uh, good length and undersized slightly, like just a little bit under height, I guess, for an edge rusher that can play both two and three point stance. Um, I was going back and watching some Shaq Barrett highlights from his last season. I was like, okay, I think this makes sense. I think it's a good, good comp because like I said, not the height you want him to be. I think Ojolari is like 6'2", but he's got good length and he's really bendy. He's really explosive. And I think he, he can play like that sort of off, you know, the two-point stance, three-point stance or whatever they need him to do. So it was just more like a stylistic sort of size profile type type comp. I totally get it. When I was watching him, he's confounding. Because yeah. when you're watching him and he's just standing there, he seems much taller than he is because his arms are so long. You right. just don't have many guys built like that. Because the guys I've seen him comp to, I think Shaq Barrett makes total sense. Another but person is Yannick Ngakwe because he's a 6'2 mm-hmm. rusher with really good bend. And I think that Ojolari, you see the hands and the swipe and the flexibility. And I get the yeah. Ngakwe thing. But Ngakwe's arms are much, much shorter. Ojolari has 34 and a third inch arms, okay, compared to 32 and a half for Ngakwe. Ojolari yeah. at 6'2 has longer arms than Romeo Okwara, who we would call a long pass rusher who uses his <laughs> length really well. And yeah, that's yeah. why it's just so hard to come up with somebody that I, I think he plays like because he has some of Ngakwe. I think there is a little bit of that Shaq Barrett. The thing about Barrett that yeah. I think is is a little bit different and unique is that he's... 6'2", he's not necessarily overly powerful, but he's so, so consistent at playing through half a man as a pass rusher. When you watch him, he's attacking one shoulder all the time and stringing together moves and always moving toward the quarterback. It's like just a sense of how to go after guys that I think is very advanced. And with Ojolari, I don't know if he's there yet, but I think if you get him in with the right coaching staff and you teach him to weaponize that length, Yeah, it, you just get a 6'2 pass rusher of the sort that we don't often see. Like Those guys just don't have that sort of length. You can't long-arm people at 6'2 in the way that he's probably going to be able to in his <laughs> right, career, right. and I just think that's why he's so interesting. But I do think there there's definitely some imagination involved with him too. He doesn't play very strong. You know, it's a lot of stuff that 
Yeah, uh, with a yeah. 6'2", 250-pound guy, you'd want him to be a little bit more powerful and play with more leverage than he does. Like He's not that dissimilar in terms of overall size to Carl Lawson. Lawson is incredibly mm. powerful. Ojolari doesn't necessarily play like that, which right, I, right, I think right. that's kind of why he's more similar to Ngakwe. But yeah, I mean, it's the fact that we're having this conversation and you're, there are all these things you can kind of dig at with the best pass rushers in this class, I think is very telling. <laughs> and I think the same right. goes... For Jason Owe from Penn State, who is next on your list, who would you compare him to? So this one's more like a, a comp as a prospect, but I I, I comped him to Daniel Hunter, and, and basically it was because like length, athleticism, tools, everything that you look for from a pass rusher, um, but just the production isn't there, and I think that's the big thing. And and obviously this past season was weird, and you know they didn't play like a full season or whatever, and so like it's 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 not apples to apples, but he did not have a sack this last season. And that's going to be a red flag for a lot of teams. And I think, I don't know. I, I feel like I've heard this before, but I don't think there's ever been a first round pass rusher, like pure pass rusher that had zero sacks the year before. You know, if it is, it's, it's a rare thing. And so that is the question the NFL teams are going to have to ask is like, is this guy just a weight room warrior type guy? Cause he ran like a four, three, something, you know, at like he ran a four, three, nine. Pounds. It's it's one of the greatest, yeah. purely one of the greatest pre-draft physical performances that have ever existed. Like that's not an exaggeration. Yeah. It, right. He he is the first defensive end in many databases to run a sub four four forty. He weighs two hundred fifty pounds. I mean, Just, everything yeah. about the way that he tested is out of this world good. Yeah, and I think you know he was decently productive at least from a disruption point of view. But yeah, the sack thing is 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 a glaring red flag, and I, I know that was the same deal with with Daniel Hunter. Um, so I think these these match up. The only difference is Owe is probably going to go pretty early. Like and Daniel Hunter round, was a third round pick. Yeah, late round first, late first round, I should say, or you know maybe it's an early second because of the lack of sack production. But there's going to be a team that's going to be like, dude, this guy is just the best athlete at that pass rusher that we've ever seen. We're going to take him early and turn him into something. Um, so I this this pass rush class is very interesting because there's no one like very clear best guy or even like a top ten pick necessarily, um, or at least clear top ten pick. So it, it's going to be interesting to how these all stack up. I think that I would love to see him land with the right coaching staff in the same way that Neil Hunter did. Like let's say Oway ends up in Minnesota with Andre Patterson who coached Daniel Hunter. Like I think that is the best case scenario for him because you need somebody who's going to be able to tap into that skill set. And it is a vast yeah. skill set. Yeah. But if he lands with the wrong coaching staff, you're just going to have somebody that is really athletic and doesn't know how to play. Be, yeah. But there is yeah. a lot to shape there. All right, buddy. That's all we got. I really, really appreciate you coming by to do this. Sure, it's man. always good to check football with you. I missed you. I miss you very much. So I I'm glad you you're too, doing buddy. well. I'm glad you're doing great. <laughs> This was really fun. Guys, please go listen to the Ringer Fantasy Football Show that Danny does with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. It is very entertaining. It is not just a fantasy show. You will learn a lot <laughs> about you. football. He is also holding down the Friday spot on the Ringer NFL show right now, doing yep. their big yep. board shows. Please go check those out and go read the Ringer Draft Guide. It is one of the best pieces of draft content out there. And I'm not just saying that because I used to work there. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Oh, it's, oh, absolutely, buddy. It was great to chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Thank you very much for stopping by. Thank you so much to Danny Kelly. It was oh, It's always good to chat with him. That was a lot of fun. Thank you to Lindsay. We will be back tomorrow. Nate and I are doing the top 
pass catchers in this draft, mostly receivers with little Kyle Pitts thrown in there, I assume. Please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I would sincerely appreciate that. And please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. I promise you, you will not regret it. Just an amazing amount of draft coverage that we're putting out all the time. Dane Brugler's draft guide comes out this week. So now is the time to sign up if you have not. We'll be back tomorrow with Nate. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you later. This was The Athletic Football Show.